We are delighted to have with us the author of a brand new book, Man of Sorrows, John T. Rhodes. Hello and welcome to Expositive Word, John T. Thanks so much for having us. Good to be with you. Uh, thank you very much. John T., as well as being an author, I know that you're a really busy man with lots of things going on. Tell us everything that we need to know about you in 60 seconds. Yeah, I don't need 60. Um, I'm married to Georgina. Uh, we've got five kids. That's what keeps me busy. So five kids. The eldest is only seven. The youngest was born four and a half weeks ago. Little baby <laughs> Iona. So um, that, that takes up most of my time. Um, I'm pastor of a church plant in Leeds. It's been going for uh, nearly four years. So half our time has been COVID. Um, uh, yeah, big city in the north of England for, for listeners who aren't from, from the UK. And um, in fact, my last two jobs have both been church planting in sort of cities in the north of England, Derby before here. Um, I used to play a bit of cricket, but kids put, put paid to that. So, um, yeah, outside outside of work and family, I'm not got a lot of, not a lot of <laughs> spare time at the moment. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Exactly. How did you become a Christian and when did you feel called to ministry? Yeah, thanks. So it, it was through a school teacher. So um, I went to a posh English boarding school um, and, uh, you know, you're away from home, all the rest of it. And there was one uh, one teacher, Mr. Wilkinson, used to run a Christian meeting. You'd go along and guys would turn up each week, give a little barber talk. Um, and it was really through that. Um, so I never went to church until I was probably 19, 20, because um, you were living at this boarding school. Yeah. Um, so that was it, it was a sort of slightly weird first five years say, of my Christian life. Um and I feel I always feel like I tumbled into ministry. I, I feel like I ought to have a better story and a kind of more dramatic call. But um, I I went to work for a church just for a year to do youth work again near Derby. And the minister said, I'll do another year. So I stayed on for another year. And then he said that he felt that and the church felt that it you know it was right to explore ministry full time. So it was, it was through that. Um, it was a Church of England church, but I knew it wasn't Church of England. So it was a slightly kind of meandering journey, but they were fantastic. Um, they invested loads in training me. Um, the guy there, Mark Pickles, my boss, was was great. So um, yeah, it was it was a it wasn't kind of a dramatic experience; it was more of a sort of slow growth thing. Yeah. Um, but that's now been about probably about fifteen years now. Wow, amazing! We've got you here today to talk about your brand new book. Um, give us an overview of it, and um, how did you come to write it? It came out of a conversation actually. I was, I was wandering down the the road to the pub with a um, actually an American pastor who was visiting Leeds. And we were talking about we we're talking about preaching, you know, as pastors do. And um, we we're talking about preaching the Old Testament and how, you know, you want to you want to get to Jesus. You don't want to just stay in the Old Testament. But I said I often struggled and, and worried that my, my, the last five minutes of all my sermons ended up sounding the same. You know, I do my Old Testament sermon and then it's like, well, I know I've got to say Jesus died for you. So I'll, I'll get there. But it felt a bit kind of clunky. Yeah. And he said to me, look, you've got to think that Jesus is prophet, priest and king. Um and what it made me start realising, and this is really what the book's about, is that um, there's more to the work of Jesus than just the cross. Um, now, the cross is the centre, don't get me wrong, that's absolutely the centre. Um, but there is, there's more there. Um, and there's more to the cross than just him paying the penalty for our sins. Although, again, obviously, that is the absolute centre. I always worry when I start saying there's more that people think that you can move that out of the side. No, not at all. That is the centre. But there is more in the Bible. Um, so it would, the idea of the book is to think about what it means for Jesus to be our prophet, priest and king. And to think both about what he did in his life on earth, but also what he's continuing to do as prophet, priest, king now in heaven. Yeah. So just exploring that a little bit more, you warn of two ways that Christians can minimise the person and work of Christ in striving to be gospel centred. What are those pitfalls? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about a disconnected cross and a disconnected Christ. Um, 
and disconnected cross i suppose i mean that if you read the stories of the gospels jesus did lots of stuff he was yeah he was born he was circumcised he was baptized he had a life of suffering um he preached he kept the law he was on trial he was buried um he rose again he ascended to heaven he sat down at the right hand of god there's lots of events you could chart in the if you like the story of jesus life and again although the cross is the center you don't want to pull the cross out um and make it the only thing so i i would suspect in lots of our churches especially good churches that put the gospel center if you say what did jesus do for you people will say he died for me yeah. and that and that is good if you say what else dry up pretty quickly so trying to put the cross back into the whole story of jesus life and as it continues now and then talking about disconnected christ just um i think maybe may, it's very easy just to sort of minister to your own world isn't it and maybe i'm just looking at my own blind spots but like in my world we've been really I think rightly strong trying to defend um, the idea of penal substitutionary atonement that, that Christ bore our sins. He bore God's anger at our sins in our place. Um, and again, I think that's, that's, that, that's central, but there is more to the cross than just that. So when I talk about a disconnected Christ, we're trying to try to explore what it means, not just that he's our priest, yeah. the sacrificial priest, but also he's, he's a prophet. You know, he, he reveals stuff. Um, he reveals all we need. Um, he's our king. So again, it's just about that, like that bigger picture, I suppose, rather than getting so narrow that we forget everything else uh, on the canvas. So tell us more about those three functions, then: the prophet, priest, and king. Why is it so important that um, you know Christ is the perfect prophet, priest, and king? John, say. Yeah, good question. I mean, it, it comes from the fact that he's the he's the Messiah or the Christ. So um, to be the Messiah or to be the Christ is to be the, the anointed one. Um, that's what both those words mean: Hebrew and Messiah, and Christ in Greek, and. And so when we meet Christ as he appears in the Gospels, the, the very name given to him, Jesus Christ, um, the title he bears, it is meant to point us back to the Old Testament where these three categories of people, the prophets, the priests, the kings, were all anointed, had oil poured on them. So if you like the whole Old Testament, and particularly these three categories, these three types of people, are meant to shed light on what he's come to do. Um, so you could think about, um, well, I'll start with prophet. You know, what does it mean to be a prophet? But ultimately, it means that he's come to reveal God to us. He's a prophet, not just in what he says, but in, in who he is. Yeah. Um, so, again, both in his earthly life and we might come back later, I suppose, to, to what he continues to do now, revealing God and God's will to us. He's a priest. So you're thinking sacrifice, um, atonement, um, again, cleansing and forgiving. Um, but again, it continues today. Christ doesn't have to, to, to um, sacrifice himself anymore, but he's still a priest. Hebrew says he's a priest forever. Um so we think of his priestly work maybe as his work of ongoing intercession praying for us and then of course a king um a king perhaps that's what we do think about nowadays now christ is king risen ascended ruling over us um but i think also there's lots to explore about how he's a king who came conquering um, defeating the devil defeating um uh, death yeah um, so if you like the cross it is an altar on which he was sacrificed but it's also a throne that he was um, raised up on and it's a pulpit from which he preaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. You use the terms humiliation and exaltation to describe Christ's two states. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're not my words, but they're, they're sort of traditional um, terms, I suppose, trying to chart Jesus' journey. Um, so yeah, God is eternal, obviously the son of God um, has existed forever, but he came down to save us. So the humiliation of Christ refers to, like the, the journey from 
from heaven to the grave from womb to tomb i think i might put it in the book so his, his life of humiliation is he's taking on flesh that's the first step down uh, then his life of suffering um on the road to the cross think of gethsemane sweating in the garden all the way obviously to the cross and even his burial so that's the humiliation of christ is his if you like it's a time period in his um his his earthly ministry yeah and then the, the you know the 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 turn comes obviously at the resurrection and that begins his life of exaltation being raised up so we think about the resurrection uh, then the ascension going up to heaven his what's often called the session the sitting down at the right hand of the father um, and then his return in glory so the, the the two the two um the two terms are two stages of christ's life womb to tomb and yeah. then grave to glory yeah what is the kenosis theory and why is it so dangerous so it's, it's an it's an idea often i think wrongly attached to philippians 2 that, that when the son of god came to earth um he if i can put it like this got rid of or put aside or paused for a while some of his divine attributes some of what it means to be god so typically people say things like well um uh, when when the son of god when, when he took on flesh and uh, became one of us he, he stopped being all-knowing yeah. or maybe he stopped being all-powerful uh, or he stopped being all-present and you can sort of see why if you were walking around Galilee and, and you said where is the son of God you can you can see why at f- first glance you'd say well the only answer is he's in that boat or he's in the manger or but that's because we were just looking with with earthly eyes and w- once you realize that he is God you, you've, you've got to realize that he's at the same time um, both fully divine and fully human so everything that it means to be human is true of jesus um but at the same time everything that, that is true of god is true of jesus so take that question about um, what does he know well as god he knows all things yeah but as man he has a human mind so he's limited in knowledge now how those two work together in psychology i mean who knows yeah but that's why jesus can say he doesn't know when he's going to return or, or he can walk through a crowd and say, who touched me? You know, when the woman who's been bleeding all those years touches him. Well, if you're God, surely you know all things. Well, he does according to his divine nature, but his human mind is limited. And it's really important. I think your question was, you know, why, why does it matter? It's really important because ultimately only God can save us. So if, if, um, if in coming down to rescue us, Jesus got rid of some of his divine powers or whatever, you know we might want to call him but he's just not fully god anymore mm. you've got a god who can change and be limited and um the bible's really clear god never changes um yeah. uh, and so jesus remains uh, the son of god yeah. and therefore remains a true prophet he can really reveal god to us not kind of a toned down god yeah um yeah what are some of the um risks in terms of application because you know there are some you know churches in america that kind of apply this kenosis theory and and they then teach because you know jesus laid aside his divinity everything that jesus did can therefore be done by us today in terms of raising yeah. people from the dead and stuff just just touch on that a little bit because that's quite a present kind of issue for a lot of people at oh. the moment yeah it's really interesting it's so interesting talking to people from different contexts as well because like the, the battles that come up yeah, yeah. it's fascinating yeah, I mean, what what you, <laughs> what you don't want to do is turn Jesus into just a good man, full of the spirit and therefore no different from us. Yeah. And I think the church has always swung back and forth. So in, I actually think, in my, in, again, in my, my tiny little corner of the evangelical world, um, we're so kind of um, determined to defend the divinity of Jesus, rightly. 
we almost undermine the fact that he's really man. Yeah. Um, and so get baffled by those passages. But I, I can see too that, uh, that other times, um, uh, perhaps if you know, folk are into healings and all the rest of it, really so emphasize the fact that Jesus is just, just, just a spirit filled man that actually the gap between him and us begins to, to blur um, and his true divinity is sidelined um, or even forgotten. Um, and that could lead you into thinking that you have exactly the same rights, powers and everything as Jesus. But that's forgetting that he is the Messiah. <laughs> he is the anointed son of God um, and you're not yeah that's really helpful thank you what would you say to somebody that's struggling with getting their head around the hypostatic union yeah i mean i'd say fair play um that's <laughs> in a sense you're not meant to be able to get your head around it um so there's a guy called hillary in the early church who i'm gonna it's gonna be a horrible misquote but he said something like what man cannot understand god can be so it's not surprising that you can't and we can't fully understand that the hypostatic union, the fact that the son of God took on flesh. So the, your job is not so much to totally understand it, get rid of all mystery, because you're never going to. Of course, yeah. he's going to be greater than you and more mysterious. Like, I don't understand my car. It's not a surprise that I don't understand the son of God become flesh. So you, your job is not so much to understand, but to to live within the kind of boundaries that, that God's word has set you. Um, so to believe everything he said, um, and to not fall into some of these mistakes that, that that occasionally churches do, you know, where they get the you know, get get Jesus wrong. So you keep inside the boundaries, and then you just worship. You're not meant to fully understand. Um, so don't don't panic that you can't square the circle yeah. when you're dealing with the Son of God becoming man. Yeah. How were people saved in Old Testament times, John C? Uh, well, that, to be fair, there would be some debate on that, but I think I think that you've got to say they're saved the same way as they are ultimately in New Testament times. So there is only one God. Um, there's only one gospel. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So although this, you can have legitimate debate amongst good Bible-believing brothers and sisters about how much a Moses or a Hannah or a Samuel or a David knew, um, some people think that God slowly revealed more and more and more. Some people think that actually they knew pretty much sort of what, what we know now, albeit maybe not some of the sort of really tight details that, that's a fair enough debate but i think you've got to say that ultimately they're saved like us by faith in the gospel yeah um and that's why paul in romans and galatians when he's wanting to show the gospel is, is about faith uh, and grace he goes to abraham right back to genesis because um, abraham is saved the same way as us um, he is justified by faith in god's god's savior yeah yeah, really good. Where do a lot of cults and false religions go wrong in understanding who Jesus is? That's a really interesting question. I I wonder if it links back to what, what we talked about a moment ago. And I wonder if it comes from trying to understand too much or, or trying to simplify um, and, and push and push and push. So one of the most famous heretics in church history, a guy called Arius, um, just, just, couldn't, it, it just couldn't accept that you could have uh, the son of God being fully God and yet distinct from the father. And, and so in some ways made things easier to understand by saying that, that Jesus was a better than us, um, still divine ish, but not equal with the father. And that kind of makes things easier because then you can have a top God who's the father, a kind of second God who's less important, who's the son and a third one who's a spirit. And that makes it all very easy. It's pretty much where the Jehovah's witnesses go. Um, Jesus is greater than us. Um, sort of divine like, 
but not yeah. of one substance with the father. So I think a lot of these heresies are an attempt to to simplify and make kind of palatable to our own human minds things that are actually mysterious. Yeah. If you like, they're a refusal to live on the basis of the revelation of God's word and trying to make it kind of clearer, clearer to us. Yeah. Um, so many of them will be making Jesus just not fully divine. Um, he becomes a, just a prophet, just another messenger, um, some sort of angel or um, any time that um, people under ta- attack that the full divinity of Christ. Yeah. Um, you're heading straight into the cults and sex. Yeah. Tell us about Christ's obedient, both passive and active. Okay, well, um, to go back to the idea that Christ was was fully man, what what do we need? Uh, Once Adam had fallen, once we're in trouble, once we're all um, sinners and inherit sin, what we need, actually, strange as it may seem, is we need a human being to rescue us. Um, Why? Well, because it's it's our race, the human race, that is in trouble. Um, If you think of Adam right back in the beginning, what, what was he to do? Well, certainly he was to avoid sinning. He wasn't allowed to murder and commit adultery and you know, steal the fruit and all the rest. But he also had positive things to do. You know, he was told to look after the garden, to work it, to keep it, um, to have children, to rule and subdue. So God's 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 um, law for us, if you like, is always both positive and negative. There's things to avoid, stealing, adultery, murder. But there are things to do, positively to do. Worship God, love him, heart, soul, mind and strength. So as soon as Adam sinned, we needed um, a representative. That's what Jesus called the last Adam, in fact. We needed another man who would do both those things. And that brings us to passive and active, really. So people talk about um, Christ's um, active obedience. What they're talking about is his fulfilling the law for us. So doing everything that human beings ought to have done, everything that Adam ought to have done, um, keeping God's law perfectly, in other words. But because of the fall, there's also what gets called passive obedience, so passive obedience, it could sound like it's just sort of relaxing, chilling out, not doing anything. But passive is just an old fact, you know, it's from a Latin word for suffering. So his suffering obedience will be another way to talk about it. And there we're talking about all that Christ suffered in order to save us. And that is fundamentally the curse of sin that comes in in Genesis 3. Yeah. Um, so the wrath of God at sin. So Jesus both needed to pay our debt, um, deal with the curse, that's the passive obedience. But he also, if, if that's all he did, we'd just be back at square one, yeah. back in the garden. Yeah. Um, and we're just going to stuff up again, aren't we? Yeah. So he also, thank God, lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law for us. Um, and that's why in Paul's letters, he talks very rarely about being forgiven, but all the time about being justified. Yeah. Because to be justified is not just to be forgiven, yeah. but also to be counted as if Christ's righteousness, Christ's life record was yours. Yeah. Yeah. Why was the cross necessary? Well, um, it it's when people talk about the cross being necessary, it, it depends what, you, what you're asking, really. In, in one sense, it wasn't in that it, it wasn't necessary for, for God to do it. It was purely grace. So God would have been perfectly just just to leave us in our sin and um, uh, and we all head towards judgment. So it wasn't um, it wasn't necessary in one sense, of the word. But um, to use human language, once God and his, his grace had decided to, to save us, um, then think back to the garden again what, what what was god's promise the day you eat of it so the day you sin adam who represents all humanity the day you sin you will die and death in the bible isn't just stopping breathing and your heart ceasing to beat it's it's what later gets called the second death it's hell and judgment the wrath of god at sin so 
if anyone is going to be able to re-enter paradise, if anyone's going to be able to live at peace with God again, um, then that punishment had to be taken. God couldn't just, God is holy. He can't just push it away. He can't just forget about it. Um, and so um, the cross where Christ pays that debt, pays our penalty, if you like, goes through hell on the cross in our place, um, was uh, was necessary for us, our salvation. Um, yeah. It's in the shedding of blood that, that forgiveness comes. Yeah. What did it mean for Christ to be forsaken on the cross, John Z? Again, we're, we're walking, you know, we're walking into dark mysteries here. You know, it was dark when the Christ died on the cross. And I think in many ways, we're, it's hard to fathom exactly what's going on. Um, I think it was a few things we, we can't say. We mustn't say the Trinity is torn apart. Um, again, God never changes. And ultimately, God is one. There is one God. Three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, each one fully God, but ultimately only one God. So occasionally you hear people say, when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he, it's the Trinity being torn apart. That, that cannot be the case. Um, but rather, again, we come back to Jesus being man as well as God. And so uh, as he dies, uh, bearing this, this penalty that was due us, we might, we might remember that all the way through the, the Old Testament, that the curse um, uh, was described in language of being cut off. Um, so we, Adam and Eve are cut off from the Garden of Eden. When, if someone sins in particularly bad ways, they're to be cut off from the people of God. Even circumcision is a cutting off. So that cutting off language, I think, is picked up in this in this cry of dereliction, as it's sometimes called. And, and the idea is not that, well, I think you look at Jesus in two ways. As son, God is still delighted with him. Okay, he's, he's his son. Of course, he's delighted with Jesus, even on the cross, because you know, Jesus himself says, this is why the father loves me, but I lay down my life for the sheep. Yeah. So, of course, he is, he is a, an acceptable sacrifice. God still loves him. How could he not doing the most incredible thing that's ever been done? But he's also our substitute. And so because he takes on our debt, he pays our punishment. And that involves um, God no longer kind of shining his face upon yeah. uh, Jesus in his human nature, but Jesus ex- experiencing what it means to come under the, the wrath of God. Um, so God's still supporting him, you know, strengthening him. But actually, instead of seeing a smiling face from heaven, um, uh, undergoing the, the torments in body and soul um, that sin deserves. So I don't think it's a cry of panic. In fact, he's quoting Psalm 22 and halfway through that, that Psalm, verse 22 onwards, he kind of turns a corner and the, the Psalmist, ultimately Jesus um, says, I will praise you among my brothers. So he knows he's going to rise again. It's not panic, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he is going through this awful experience of meeting God in, in anger and wrath. Yeah, really helpful. Thank you. How does knowing that Christ is still active in his prophetic ministry change how we listen to sermons on Sunday mornings in our local churches? Now that, that's one of the things that actually in, in, in preparing the series that became this book most struck me, I think. I, if you'd asked me before I got going teaching this series and writing the book, what does it mean that Christ is a prophet now? I'd have talked about him inspiring the scriptures um, through the apostles. Um, so it's the very word of God. And then I pretty much would have stopped. Um, but actually, I think it's really important that Jesus is still active in his prophetic work. He's not adding any new revelation, I think. Uh, you know, I, I think the scriptures are sufficient. The, the, the canon is closed. So there's, there's nothing new he needs to say. But um, there's plenty more I need to learn. So although it's all there in the, in the Bible, I, as a sinful human being, don't fully obey it, don't fully understand it, don't fully um, love it and listen to it as I should. 
And so he is active, opening his people's eyes and indeed non-Christians eyes. They, they get converted um, to, to the truth, the glory of his word. And you mentioned preaching there. I think that's a really, um, a really striking one. Um, one of the things that I've I sort of noticed, I suppose, in the New Testament is that um, Paul is happy to talk about Jesus still preaching. So he says to the Ephesians, Christ came and preached to you. And you think, that's, that's not true. Jesus never went to Ephesus. How did Jesus preach to the Ephesians? Or, or when he's on, he's on trial um, before Festus, um, uh, he, he says to Festus, look, I'm just teaching everything that Moses said. So everything the Old Testament said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he, Jesus, would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles or preach light, if you like. So Paul says, even Moses said that Jesus would preach to the, to the Gentiles. Yeah. And so I think what that means is that when I go to a, sit in church on a Sunday and providing that the minister is teaching the scriptures, obviously, it's not, you know, it's not yeah. their own words, but provided they're teaching the Bible. Yeah. And I'm not just listening to one man speak about another. Um, rather, Jesus is speaking to me. Jesus yeah. is preaching to me through his, through his word. And I just think that means you take it a lot more seriously. I'm coming here to meet Jesus. Yeah. I'm not just coming to learn stuff and take some notes. I'm not coming to, to a class or a lecture. I'm, I'm coming to the Lord, my God, my King, and I'm going to sit and listen to him um, as he speaks to me through this fallible man yeah. um, uh, who's in the pulpit. Yeah, so amazing, that, isn't it? So Incredible. amazing. What does it mean that Christ is interceding for us and how should that truth encourage us today? Yeah, well, this takes us to Jesus' priestly ministry today, to touched on it very briefly in passing earlier um if you think of the old testament um what did priests do well they sacrificed on the altar the bronze altar out in the courtyard of the temple but they also kept incense burning in the holy place which was i think symbolic of, of prayers coming up um uh, to god and so jesus he's, he's done the once and for all sacrifice out there on the altar on the cross he doesn't need to do any more and he's gone into the holy places we're told in the book of hebrews but we read in, yeah, in Romans and, and Hebrews that, that he continues to intercede for us, essentially to pray for us, I think, yeah. um, which is a stunning thing. I, I can't, there's mystery. I can't, you know, get my head around the logistics of that. How does Jesus pray for all these people? And I don't know, he's God, he's the son of God. And, but it does mean that um, that all our needs are in, are in his hands. So if you like, the cross is the place that he won all the, you know, or every blessing we need, like a great treasure chest of jewels, and, and now, as you know, he asked the father, that these jewels are handed out to us for our, our journey home. And it's just huge comfort to know, you know, my prayers are awfully weak. Um, and even when your friends text you and say, oh, I'm praying for you, you know, some of them are, and some of them, if you're honest, probably aren't. Uh, but the, the son of God is. Um, I, think it, I think it's John Newton said, how wonderful to know that all our, all our concerns are ha- held in the hands that bled for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. He is still active and still cares. Yeah. What is the role of the church today in light of a knowledge that Christ is still actively ruling and reigning? So I think the church, um, the church is the, the centre of where Christ rules and, and reigns. That, that to say the church, the church and the kingdom are not exactly the same thing, but they're pretty tight. Um, and I think sometimes Christians overexpand the use of kingdom um, to go further, further beyond church than is, is perhaps helpful. Um, uh, so I mean, think of Jesus, you know, I will, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then one sentence later, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Um, they're, they're two very similar um, terms. And so um, the church, we need to understand ourselves. The church needs to understand herself as the kingdom where 
the Lord Jesus reigns uh, and the place where he, he is active. Um, so if you're a church leader, you're not running your church. Jesus is running the church yeah. through you. Um, uh, when we think about mission and evangelism, um, it's not um, uh, we're building the church for Jesus. Think about his words. I will build the church, yeah. not we build it for him and then yeah. give it to him when he returns or something. So it's, it's it, the church is the place where Christ is still actively at work, saving, discipling, shepherding souls. Yeah, brilliant. So, John C., what resources have been most helpful in helping you grow in your faith over the years, your favourite book, podcast, et cetera? Oh, your question. I mean, it's, it's a corny answer, but it's an important one, I suppose. Actually, it's, it's always been the local church that's been most helpful. So um, Mark Pickles, who was my pastor, first time I ever went to a proper church. He's my first boss. Um, you probably won't have heard him. I suppose most of your listeners won't have heard of him. Um, but it but it is, the, yeah, the local church has been far the most important thing. Um, I love I love reading um and so i think if, if you can if you can get reading then that's just an incredible blessing isn't it um if i if you know if i had to choose someone like Sinclair, i think sinclair ferguson's yeah with his preaching and his books are, are are so so helpful so i read a book called the whole christ recently um for the second time actually first time i read it i thought oh you know it's fine second time i read it, I thought this is amazing um so if, if any of your listeners haven't read the whole christ stuff reading any books i've written just just go and get the whole christ and uh, and read that and and i would and i think sinclair's stuff is his preaching is is fantastic yeah. um and i do i do all sorts of podcasts actually i found that that's a real modern blessing isn't it but i've got all, all sorts of stuff on the phone that sort of keeps pinging yeah um and trying to i think particularly as a pastor trying to listen to a fairly wide range of people who you wouldn't necessarily you know invite to the pulpit but um yeah there's plenty out there yeah do you have any closing thoughts and what's the best way for people to follow what you're doing oh they don't need to do that <laughs> um yeah i i i um yeah i've enjoyed writing a couple of books um and, and i hope they're helpful to the church um but yeah I, I i'm not massively active in social media and all that sort of stuff and you know i'm not that worth listening to so <laughs> go read go read sinclair and listen to him okay brilliant well thank you so much for coming on john we're gonna make sure that we've got a link to your book in the description below it's been a real pleasure getting to know you today thank you so much pleasure thanks so much for having us nice to chat 